Welcome to the last month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Finnegan partner Kathleen Daly joins us now to offer insight into three recently decided cases and their potential implications. Kathleen, in the first case, Western Gecko versus Ion, the Federal Circuit examined whether a party may or may not be time barred from instituting inter partes review if it has a business relationship with the defendant in an earlier filed infringement suit where the party was not in privity with that defendant. Now, tell us a little bit about the case and the concept of privity. Sure. Earlier in the year, in Wi-Fi 1B Broadcom, the Federal Circuit held in bank that the court could review PTO determinations of whether an IPR is time-barred under 35 U.S.C. Section 315B. The court had previously held that such time-bar determinations were not reviewable. So as a result of that in-bank ruling, the Federal Circuit in this Western Gecko versus Ion case was able to review whether the IPRs that had been filed were time-barred. The background's a little complicated, but I'll try to briefly summarize. Here, Western Gecko sued manufacturer Ion Geophysical Corporation for infringement back in 2009, and later sued Ion's customer, Petroleum Geoservices, or PGS for short, for infringement. And after PGS was sued, it filed a number of petitions for inter-party review, and Western Gecko argued that PGS was time-barred from filing such petitions because of its relationship with ION. Under 35 U.S.C. Section 135B, the PTO may not institute an IPR where the petition is filed more than one year after the date on which the petitioner, the real party in interest, or a privy of the petitioner is served with a complaint alleging infringement of the challenged patent. There was no question that ION, having been sued in 2009, could not have filed these IPRs. And Western Gecko argued that PGS also could not file these petitions because it was in privity with ION. So that brings us to the question that you had asked about what is privity. And privity refers to a relationship between parties. As the court noted, the statute does not define privity. There is no universally applicable definition of privity. The court indicated that privity involves a close relationship between parties, and particularly one that is sufficiently close such that one party should be bound by the outcome of a case as to another party. The court said another way you could look at this is whether the petitioner is simply serving as a proxy to allow another party to litigate the patent validity question that that other party had raised in an earlier litigation or context. So in in this case, the, the question really was, was the relationship between PGS and ION sufficiently close that PGS is simply a proxy for ION such that it should be bound by the decision in the ION case? And here the court had answered that question saying that the parties were not in privity. Why wasn't this party found to be in privity? Well, the court found that the relationship wasn't sufficiently close to be in privity. The court noted that determining whether parties are in privity is a very factual determination, and it's going to be done on a case-by-case basis. Here, ION and PGS were noted to be distinct and unrelated corporate entities, and they were represented by different counsel. There was no evidence that ION controlled or influenced PGS's petitions or their filing of the petitions. And likewise, there was no evidence that PGS funded or controlled ION's litigation. They appeared to be distinct entities acting separately. And the court further noted that PGS filed the petitions as a defensive measure against a lawsuit filed against it. Now, the court did note that PGS and ION had a pre-suit 
business relationship through a contract, but said it was a fairly standard customer-manufacturer relationship regarding the accused product. Western Gecko had also raised an indemnity provision that ION was required to indemnify PGS, but the court noted that that provision was vague and didn't actually require ION to pay for any litigation defense or litigation damages. And they said based on the vagueness of that indemnity provision, it wasn't sufficient to establish this close relationship that's needed to be considered in privity. What implications do you see as a result of the Federal Circuit's decision? I think this case is important because parties have been seeking guidance on what it means to be in privity. These type of customer-manufacturer relationships are common, as are indemnification agreements. These types of relationships are frequently raised in post-grant proceedings as establishing privity and preventing the pursuit of IPRs or other post-grant proceedings. And while this case does not definitively state that an indemnity agreement can show parties to be in privity or not show parties to be in privity, it does provide guidance to parties as to when an indemnity clause could show privity or could not show privity. Now, Kathleen, the next case, XYLLC versus TransOvaGenetics LC, had a very unusual outcome, or to be more specific, two outcomes. Tell us more about it. In this case, XY sued Transova for infringement, and a jury found that Transova willfully infringed and did not prove that the patents were invalid. The jury even awarded $4.5 million in damages for the infringement. In the meantime, while that case was going on, another party filed IPRs on some patents at issue in this case. They were referred to in this decision as the freezing patents as involving some cryopreservation. In those IPRs, the PTAB held that the claims were unpatentable, and XY appealed the decision from the PTAB, and TransOva appealed the decision from the district court case. The arguments for those two appeals were actually heard on the same day, and decisions in those cases were issued on the same day. And in the appeal from the decision from the PTO, the Federal Circuit affirmed the PTO's decision holding the claims in the freezing patents unpatentable. The Federal Circuit then, on its own, used that decision to invalidate the freezing patents in the appeal from the district court trial. So despite a jury having found those patents infringed and not invalid, the court held that XY was collaterally stopped based on the decision from the PTO from arguing the validity of the freezing patents. The court stated that the affirmance of the IPR decision renders final a judgment on the invalidity of the freezing patent and has an immediate issue-preclusive effect on any pending or co-pending actions involving that patent. So despite having a favorable jury verdict and a award of damages, the decision from the PTO had an immediate impact of invalidating or nullifying that decision as to the patents involved in the PTO decision. And there was also a dissent in this case. What was it about? The dissent had a number of concerns, a main one being that the decision raises critical issues of constitutional balance as between an administrative agency and a district court. According to the dissent, a decision from an administrative agency cannot moot a decision from an Article III court. The dissent noted that there are different burdens of proof and appellate standards of review in appeals from the PTO and the district court, and stated that the majority's decision raises critical issues of constitutional balance. And another concern that the dissent raised was that this issue was done sua sponte by the court without briefing from XY on the effect of the decision in the IPR. 
there the majority stated that the briefing wasn't necessary because XY had had a full and fair opportunity to litigate the validity in the IPR. And in the final case we examined this month, there's a bit of a precedent. PGS Geophysical versus Yonku is the first case since the Supreme Court's recent decision in SAS, where the federal circuit was faced with the question of whether to reopen claims where institution was denied. Tell us more. Yeah, this is one of the first cases coming down after SAS. And in SAS, the Supreme Court held that if the PTO institutes an IPR, it must institute on all claims challenged in a petition. But there's been a question since that decision as to whether that also meant that the PTO must address all grounds for invalidity raised in the petition. Here, the Federal Circuit answers those questions, giving clearer guidance on what should happen moving forward following SAS. What legal groundwork does this case lay? Here the court indicated that the Supreme Court's decision requires instituting an IPR on all grounds in addition to all claims. In other words, the the PTO cannot do a partial institution. It's either an all or none proposition. It either institutes on all claims and all grounds or it doesn't institute at all. The court said it read SAS as interpreting the statute to require a simple yes or no institution choice respecting a petition, embracing all challenges included in the petition, and the court indicated that it had seen no basis for a contrary understanding of the statute in light of SAS. The court also said that it viewed as a distinct question as to whether after instituting on the entire petition, the board could decide the merits of certain challenges and then find others moot, meaning the PTO, if it institutes a petition, must include all challenge claims and all grounds raised in the petition, but left open the question of whether it had to decide all grounds in the final decision. I think it's fair to say that we will see many more decisions on this. And in fact, in this case, the court noted that some open questions remained. Our guest has been Kathleen Daly, a partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.